This is The Shift Podcast. I'm Martin Strong, in for Shane. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, are Trump-style politics seeping into Canada? Mount Royal University political scientist Dwayne Bratt tells us how Canadian politicians are taking pages out of Trump's playbook and why our political climate is vastly different from the United States. A huge study has found a majority of Canadians who require medical cannabis are turning to the recreational market. Dr. Linda Balneves, Associate Professor at the University of Manitoba, tells us how Canadians are using cannabis to help their ailments and why turning to the recreational cannabis market can have some devastating effects on health care. Are you okay with chocolate? How about American Idol? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. There's some controversy brewing in Alberta after a tape surfaced of Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and a pastor from Calgary discussing his criminal trial. This pastor, Arthur Palowski, is facing charges for his role in a protest over COVID regulations in early 2022 that blocked the U.S.-Canada border crossing at Coots, Alberta, back in the thick of COVID. Uh, that Well, I guess it was sort of later on. But that blockade paralyzed the crossing for more than two weeks. Smith can be heard on a cell phone video telling Pulowski that the charges he's facing are politically motivated. And there's a lot of red flags in that statement. Critics say that the premier as the head of government, is ultimately responsible for the Crown prosecuting criminal offences. So her saying that the case is politically motivated is basically the Premier of Alberta saying that the justice system in Alberta is corrupt. Does it remind you of anybody? I'll give you a hint. He's currently in hot water for hush money payments to a porn star. And he and most of the Republican Party is saying the same thing, that the charges are politically motivated and basically that the justice system is corrupt. It seems like what's going on in Alberta is from the same playbook. And to help us with that is someone with some real insight into Alberta politics and how American-style politics might be starting to seep in there and in the rest of Canada. Dwayne Bratt is a poli-sci professor in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Dwayne, thanks for being here. Hey, happy to be here, Martin. Right. So I just mentioned what's going on in Alberta. The NDP says the entire case is now compromised because of what the premier said about it being politically motivated. Uh, do you think it's as simple as that? This this issue has been dogging Daniel Smith for, for a long period of time. Um, during her leadership race uh, to succeed Jason Kenney as leader of the UCP and the, to succeed him as as premier, uh, much of her campaign was about relitigating COVID. And she promised that she was going to provide amnesty for anyone convicted or charged uh, under COVID offenses. Uh, in her first press conference after becoming premier, she said the unvaccinated were the most discriminated group she's ever seen in her lifetime. And there were a series of these statements that were made uh, during the leadership race and then when she was uh, premier. And then in January, 
um, CBC um, released a story alleging that staffers in the premier's office were contacting crown prosecutors dealing with COVID cases to, to drop the cases. Uh, this is obviously a big no-no. Um, and it didn't come out of nowhere because Smith has been caught on tape in December um, saying the same thing, that she was contacting Crown prosecutors about that. Smith later said that she was imprecise in her language um, and that she never contacted Crown prosecutors. She simply spoke to the Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandro, and his deputy and asked them, is there a likelihood of conviction here? Is these charges in, in the public interest? She was then told that despite her promises during the leadership race, that Canadian premiers can't actually pardon people. That's a U.S. <laughs> thing. Um, and she acknowledged that uh, too many people in Canada are confused by our legal system, uh, failing to acknowledge that she was one of them. <laughs> well, she was... Uh, facing a lot of hot water with this, sto this CBC story in January. And so there was a very quick review, an internal review, and they said, no, there were no emails sent from her office, any of her staffers to Crown prosecutors. They did this search uh, over a weekend, nothing to see here. Uh, and then she threatened CBC uh, by uh, with a defamation suit. We didn't hear much about that. Things drifted on. And then last Wednesday, that 11-minute tape between Art Puzlowski and Daniel Smith is, is released. Now, this occurs in January. We're not quite sure when in January, but it occurs in January. This is very significant for, for a number of reasons. One is Smith does say, you know, she uh, that Crown prosecutors are independent. She has no influence over them, but appears really disappointed when she says that uh, <laughs> and she goes on to say that she discusses these cases on a weekly basis with Tyler Shadrow and his deputy. So if you're asking questions over and over and over again, are you actually pressuring somebody on that? Um, that's where we start to get into the SNC Lavalin Justin Trudeau affair which he was even cognizant of. She admits uh, that what Trudeau did was was wrong, and yet she appears to also be admitting she was she was doing some of the same thing. She does use the phrase about contacting prosecutors, but I think that was more imprecise language. I didn't think that that's what she meant on the uh, on the tape. This was widely publicized. The NDP had a press conference. Many of the other media outlets had this. Um, it was on Art Puzlowski's YouTube page, but was relatively undiscovered until last week. And over the weekend, CBC was sent a notice of defamation by Daniel Smith's lawyers, um, calling for a full retraction and apology by the end of April. And, uh, and she goes, and if we don't get that by the end of April, then we will be filing a defamation suit against them. For those outside of Alberta, we go to the polls starting May 1st. The, the writ will be dropped May 1st for a May 29th election. So the April 28th deadline heads us right into the election period if that occurs. 
And in the letter from Smith's lawyers, it also said, and because this is a legal matter, I can no longer comment uh, <laughs> about any of this. So she had a press availability today, and multiple journalists asked her about the phone call with Art Plazowski. And she said, I can't talk about it. It's a legal matter. I can't talk about it. It's a legal matter. Even though one of the reasons it's so controversial is Pozlowski was going to trial weeks before he spoke to the premier on the on the telephone. So there is so much here to to unpack. That's just the opening I can give you. Right. And you, you mentioned relitigating uh, the, the whole covid thing. And it seems like a lot of this kind of movement, this political movement, is about relitigating COVID. Uh, a lot of protests. It seemed, it kind of seemed funny to me that people were protesting something that you know regulations that had already been dropped. Yes, and those protests continue, um, which makes you wonder if it was actually about COVID rules or whether it was about something else, um, but. The there was a, a minority, but a, a loud minority in Alberta that strongly opposed vaccine mandates uh, and other COVID restrictions. Uh, Art Pazlowski was one of the more notable ones, but this is how you ended up with the the blockade at the at the Coots border is is protesting those. Um, th there were also people who participated in the Ottawa convoy as well in in February of. of 2022. And those forces helped to bring down Jason Kenney and why he is no longer premier. And many of those same people went and supported Danielle Smith in her leadership race. Uh, Danielle Smith, prior to entering the leadership race, had talked about um, hydrochloroquine and ivermectin as being really good cures for COVID. She admits that she didn't trust Moderno, but wanted to travel. So she flew down to Phoenix to take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because she believed that that was safer. Um, she has apologized on behalf of the Alberta government for any COVID rules that they put in. Um, and so she really is fighting against the Kenny government and what they did, even though many of the ministers in the Kenny government are the same in her government. And a good example is Tyler Shandro. Tyler Shandro is the justice minister now. He is charged with um, trying to um, protect those who were unfairly punished during COVID. Tyler Shandro was the health minister who brought in many of those restrictions <laughs> under Jason Kenney. So it, it's bizarro world. Yeah, uh, we're we're talking to Dwayne Bratt, a poli sci professor at uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary, about what's going on in Calgary. You've got the election coming up, and it it just sort of seems to run parallel to what's going on in the United States. Um, I I I'm just wondering, do you think that this issue could be a winner for 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 Smith? It was a winning issue to win her the leadership which then made her premier, but it is damaging her in the general election. Um, given the economic situation in Alberta, which is quite good, they just posted another you know two and a half billion dollar surplus and delivered a budget in February where they 
uh, increased spending. It's the largest spending budget in Alberta's history. Times are good again here, uh, but there's a group of what we call reluctant conservatives, primarily in the city of Calgary, which will decide the election, which have always voted conservative their entire lives, decades long, but are unsure about some of the trustworthiness, some of the judgment issues around Danielle Smith, and all of it, well, maybe not all of it, because she said some strange things about Ukraine as well, but most of it is about COVID. Uh, these are fiscally conservative, but socially progressive people, people who got vaccinated, people who realized we were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, much of Smith's support has come from rural Alberta. Calgary's going to be the battleground, and this issue is dogging her. And it's one of the reasons she could very well lose the election. Yeah, and the the parallels are are so strong to the United States. I was thinking of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I saw on 60 Minutes, saying out loud that she wanted to uh, disassemble or dismantle the FBI. And it seems like these seemed like fringe ideas uh, that don't win elections, uh, but uh, it seems like they have a bigger voice now in, in the political conversation. Well, and clearly Canadians are affected by what and the dialogue and the political debates that occur in the United States. And we saw this over COVID. In the initial period of COVID, there was almost a unity of Canadian political actors, premiers, prime ministers, but also leaders of the opposition that we're all in this together. We needed to take restrictions. There wasn't the pushback that we saw in the United States. But those people who were pushing back in the United States were able to influence people outside of government. And that movement has has continued. Uh, and, and we're seeing that, that now. Uh, we didn't see it with you know, Jason Kenney or John Horgan or Scott Moe or even their, their opponents, but we are now. And I think it's an illustration of how that argument has, has drifted in. Yeah. And and one of the, the things that we see is that kind of, in some ways, dehumanizing talk of of people's opponents. And, you know, at, at worst, it's dehumanizing, like calling someone an animal, uh, which uh, yeah. Donald Trump did to the DA Alvin Bragg in his case. But also a lot of name calling, you know, the the extreme left, the, you know, uh, the radical left. And I'm noticing it a little bit. It seems like Canadians are a little uh, more hesitant for that. But I'm starting to. We are hesitant. We're not seeing major political leaders, with the exception of Maxime Bernier, and I wouldn't call him a major political leader, using that sort of language. But the people that they listen to, uh, uh, you know, whether that is some of the alternative media uh, or um, people online or various organizers, so not necessarily leaders of parties or ministers, but there is a growing group that, that uses that language where nobody's in the middle. You're either on the far right or the radical left. Uh, Canadians, by and large, are in the middle, but we do have these extremes coming on on both on, on both ends, and and that is a worrisome, particularly because those extremes are the ones that are most politically active. 
they're the ones that that um, are members of parties. Those are the ones that are volunteers for parties. Those are the ones that donate money for parties. And we always know that it's much easier uh, to get people to volunteer and to become engaged when they're angry than there are, you know, uh, when they're a moderate. And we're seeing that on, on both sides, but more on, on the right than on the left. Yeah, definitely. The flags flying from the back of a truck that says F Trudeau, which seems it, just, it seems against the politeness of, of Canadians, but we're seeing it now. Um, and And I guess... Do you fear, as someone who has studied politics, you know, your entire career, uh, do you fear that that issues are being, real issues are being pushed out of the way and it's becoming like a wrestling sort of scenario where that's the good guy and the bad guy? And so the the issues that become top of mind for people are not as realistic as the issues that should be talked about. Yeah, I mean, you talk to, you do polling of Canadians and what are they interested in? They're interested in inflation. They're interested in health care. They're interested in education. But that's not what this is going on. This is personal attacks. And this is, as I said, relitigating COVID, uh, where we had, you know, the shutdown of the border at Coots. We had the shutdown of the border at Windsor. Um, we had the unprecedented use of the Emergency Act in, in Ottawa uh, with the Ottawa convoy, and the legacy of those has not gone away, um, and, and it continues. The Canadian flag has now become uh, a symbol, um, you know, and, and waving the Canadian flag. Are they waving it because they're patriotic, or are they waving it because they hate Trudeau? Um, you know, we, now you have to do almost a double take when you see the Canadian flag being held in a in a truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and moving south of the border for a second, uh, as a, a political science uh, professor, when you look at what's going on now, it's getting pretty interesting. Just from purely an entertainment standpoint, from watching it across the border, um, what do you see happening? Would you do you? Uh, do you do you think that uh, this is it for Donald Trump, or 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 I guess nobody knows. But what's your thought? No one, no, he is he's an unbelievable figure. Um, you couldn't invent him in fiction. Uh, he's got massive defenders. They may not be a majority of the population, but they're in the millions. And he's up on even more serious potential charges related to inciting violence on January sixth to intervention into the counting of the 2020 election in Georgia. You may remember the phone call where he asked the elections commissioner to just find him some more votes. Um, and so on one hand, the, the charges may appear silly, um, you know, uh, farcical about payoffs to a porn star, but we've also never had a U.S. president be charged before. And what is going to happen after that? You know, it will be a circus uh, outside of the building. And I hope it's just a circus and that we don't see uh, violence. Yeah, I guess that's one thing that's been kind of heartening so far is when people have signified that there's going to be a, a, a protest or something, it's been pretty small. And it's been yeah. pretty disappointing. So hopefully that will. Well, and, and quite frankly, Trump's track record in elections isn't very good. 
Uh, you know, yes, he won the 2016 election unexpectedly, still lost the popular vote, but he was president, but lost the midterms in 2018 uh, as a backlash to him, lost the election in 2020, participated in the, in the uh, midterm elections in 2022, and they lost again. Um, and so yet he's still considered the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination. Um, his opponents in the Republican Party are defending him over these charges. Um, Ron DeSantos, who's seen as, as the strongest contender to him, did take some cheap shots about you know paying off a porn star. But by and large, he's blasting the government by saying that these are politicized charges where you could make the argument exactly the opposite, that being a former president is what has protected him from charges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's like the, the playbook is out the window and uh, we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us. We'll have to talk again uh, <laughs> in a few weeks time and yeah. when things start to play out, because who knows what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, as the world turns, as they say. <laughs> Dwayne Brad is a poli-sci professor in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Thanks so much for talking to us. Very interesting stuff. You're welcome, Martin. This is The Shift Podcast. Welcome back. This is Martin Strong in for Shane. And up until cannabis was officially legalized in Canada in 2018, it was really gaining traction as a medicinal tool. People using it especially for chronic pain, mental health, or sleep issues. It was proving to be a legitimate and safe medical treatment. So when cannabis was decriminalized for both medicinal and recreational use, it opened the doors uh, further for doctors to learn about it, to prescribe it, to make sure patients got the right dosage, and also for new studies about its medicinal value. So why are most Canadians still not getting their medicinal cannabis through their doctors and through a prescription? and simply buying it at the store down the street. Is that healthy? In a brand new study, which was just released, it shows that more than half of nearly 6,000 people surveyed who consume medicinal cannabis got it through the recreational market. Medical officials say it's a real cause for concern when it comes to safety. These people without a prescription were also 14% more likely to report not knowing exactly how much cannabis they were taking and 7% more likely to experience side effects. Some of the people in the survey even got their stuff from family or friends or from unregulated sellers online. Well, Dr. Linda Balneves is a registered nurse, a PhD, and associate professor at the University of Manitoba. She was also the lead investigator of this report. And she's with us now. Hi, Dr. Bell Neves. Good to have you. Thanks for coming. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. All right. So uh, my first question, what's going on? Um, <laughs> do you blame these results on uh, the medical profession for not knowing enough about cannabis treatments? Or do you put some of the blame on people, you know, feeling judged or stigmatized if they ask about it? 
You know, I think there's several things at play here, and that's what our results showed us from this survey. You know, number one, we did have people that struggled to get their medical authorization, which is where they sit down with a doctor or a nurse practitioner, talk about use the use of medical cannabis, what dose, what products, and they get that medical document uh, to go to a licensed seller and get their cannabis. Um, what we heard, though, is that some people were experiencing their health professionals saying, I don't know anything about it, so I'm not comfortable authorizing it. We had other you know, physicians and nurse practitioners saying, I'm unwilling to talk about it. And then others are expressing reservation that we just don't have enough evidence yet. And as a consequence, if you don't have that medical document, you have to go either through the recreational market. And unfortunately, we're seeing people going through the unregulated market as well. Yeah, there because there certainly seems to be a stigma about it, because even now you talk to people when you mention the idea of medical marijuana or medical cannabis, uh, they kind of roll their eyes because it seemed like for a few years there, it was the excuse that you had to get your weed, basically. Mm -hmm. Most definitely, you know, and, and people still said, you know, that stigma was being experienced. And in fact, people said they wanted their medical authorization so they could avoid stigma. Uh, but they also wanted to have that in hand in case they get stopped by law enforcement. And I thought with legalization, we'd be getting beyond that. But that's still a concern for many individuals. Yeah. So let's get into the into the nitty gritty of of uh, how cannabis uh, can help. Like, what are some of the solid successes you've seen with cannabis? Which ailments that they've helped? Yeah, you know, and, and from the patient perspective in this survey, what they were telling us is that medical cannabis was very to extremely effective, particularly managing things like their appetite, promoting their appetite, uh, their nausea and vomiting, you know, for example, people living with chemotherapy, you know, for cancer, they often have very bad nausea and vomiting. People were saying they were using it for agitation, also for mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And then lastly, using it to control seizures and epilepsy. Um, but when you turn and look at the evidence, we have some great studies out there, but a lot of it is focused on pharmaceutical cannabinoids. So that's not the plant-based medicines. Um, and we just are starting to see those trials being conducted with the actual plant-based cannabis. Um, but if you look at that evidence, there's a suggestion that it helps people with chronic pain. You know, the FDA in the United States has approved CBD Epidiolex for the treatment of epilepsy. Uh, we also see it being used in Gervais syndrome. People might know of Charlotte's Web. Uh, it was a young girl that had, you know, hundreds of seizures, you know, in a week. Uh, cannabis was very effective in managing that. But we still need a lot more evidence in terms of its role in managing other health conditions, especially around mental health. We also have a lot of people interested in using it for sleep. Uh, so we're kind of at that cusp of, of getting those studies off the ground, but it's going to take several years until we have that evidence in hand. Right. And, and one of the things that's talked about in this report is the, the dangers of people, uh, going into a, a cannabis store, which I mean, the, the, you know, God love the people who work there, but they're not medical professionals. They're, you know, young people in the service industry and, uh, you know, and they maybe have a little bit of, uh, experience with it and they know, you know, this will help you sleep. This will keep, you know, help you enjoy the concert or whatever. But, um, I guess my, my question is, uh, I guess let's talk about the dangers basically mm -hmm. of, of, of doing yeah. that. You know, and 
cannabis is a very safe substance. If you look at it compared to other controlled substances, it's one of the safest. If you look at it even as a medical agent, it has very few side effects. We did have three quarters of our sample that said they had side effects, but there were things like cough from using inhaled forms. It was feeling tired. You know, those are very minor compared to some of the side effects we see with other medications, but it's not completely benign. There's some risks, particularly if you're living with heart disease and using cannabis, particularly if you're naive and haven't used it before. Um, we do see that for some individuals, uh, if they have anxiety, using a high dosages of THC can actually make their anxiety worse. And then we have this weird condition called hyperemesis, where while it may help some people with their nausea and vomiting, for some individuals, they get into a cycle where they just can't stop um, getting sick and throwing up. Um, and so there are some concerns. And then obviously there's always a concern around dependency. You know, we do know that, you know, one in six individuals that use it recreationally, they're using high dose THC. If they're using it on a daily basis, if they're using it younger under the age of 16, we get a little bit concerned that they could become dependent on it. And that comes with a whole host of physical and kind of social consequences. Right, right. And the difference between uh, ingesting and smoking um, mm. that, that, that's a huge difference. I, I would say I've, I've heard it. I've heard people talk about it. Um, that, I mean, the, when you ingest a gummy, for example, it's a, it's a much different process mm. than smoking. And, and where do you stand on that? Do some people smoke yeah. uh, medicinally? Oh, for sure. And, you know, in our sample, you know, 72% were still using dried flour and we assume that they're using it in an inhaled route. You know, and, and there are reasons for that. You know, you have very rapid effects when you're using it through an inhaled route, uh, whether through vaping or through smoking it. Uh, and if you're living with, for example, chronic pain and you're having pain breakthrough, you might want to have an immediate effect to control that pain. But there are concerns about lung health when people are using uh, inhaled forms of cannabis. And we've seen a really striking increase uh, in interest and use of things like soft gels, cannabis oil, and then of course the edibles being on the market. Um, and while you know there is an assumption they're safer for lung health, you also have to be cautious that if you consume uh, something edible um, and you take too much of it, you're gonna be sitting with that feeling for probably up to eight to 10 hours, whereas inhaled, it only lasts for probably around four hours. Right. Oh, so, yeah. And, you know, as we've seen in, in our children, when they've unfortunately gotten a hold of typically unregulated edibles um, that can be very high in THC, they can end up getting very, very sick and may require hospitalization. So there has to be a lot of care around edibles, soft gels, and that they're not made available to children. Right. And you found in this survey that a lot of people admitted that they didn't know how high the dosage was. They didn't. And, you know, what was interesting is people that hadn't had that authorization in hand, they were more likely to say, I'm not sure what I'm using. It could be because they're using inhaled routes and it's a lot more difficult to figure out how much am I getting in terms of a dose. But people without their authorization in hand also were more likely to use unregulated products which may not have labeling on it. They may be getting it from family and friends. Uh, they may not know how much THC and CBD is in that product. Um, and it also could be because they're not having that conversation with a health professional and talking about what dose would be appropriate. So they're really kind of 
guessing and kind of doing trial and error to see how much uh, they should be taking. Right. And and I don't know if you know much about this, but uh, the supply of of cannabis, I don't really know myself where it all comes from. Is it is it all government grown or is there a does it vary? You know, all of cannabis is being, um, you know, used in Canada that has gone through the regulated system. Um, it is grown in our country for the most part. There is a little bit, usually within the medical space, where there could be some products that are being brought in from, from places like the U.S. But for the most part, what you're seeing on the recreational store shelves is cannabis that's been grown in Canada and has been uh, been developed and packaged within Canada uh, under very clear sets of regulations under the Cannabis Act. Right. We're talking to Dr. Linda Balneves. She's the lead investigator on this report that shows that a majority of Canadians who use cannabis for medicinal purposes are not getting it through their doctor. And uh, it, it, it's an interesting thing, the process of going through your doctor. Tell us about that, because I'm not even sure about that. When you go to your doctor, you get a prescription, but then where do you get the, the cannabis from there? Right. Well, I do have to clarify because I'm a registered nurse that you can also go talk to your nurse practitioner. Right. Um, what typically happens is you sit down with a doctor or a nurse practitioner. They talk about it. They'll fill out a medical document. It is then the responsibility of that patient or the caregiver to submit it to a licensed medical cannabis seller. Uh, and it's submitted online. Uh, you need your credit card. So marginalized people that don't have access to internet and a credit card are kind of left out of that system. But once the seller has it, they then will process that order. And then it is actually couriered to that individual or to that caregiver uh, if they have that product in stock. So as you can imagine, it takes time. Uh, it may take a couple of tries to get the right cannabis product. Uh, and the other thing, and this was a huge thing in our study, is that there's shipping cost. Uh, and so for a lot of individuals, they said cost was the greatest barrier for them going through the medical authorization system because the cannabis was more expensive than in the recreational unregulated market. And they just said that with the taxes on top of it, it's just too expensive. I either have to stop using it or I have to find another source. Interesting. So so you feel this is something that maybe the government should look into and perhaps subsidize? You know, I think we need to relook at the taxation system. You know, it's one of the only medicines that has an excise. It is the only medicine that has an excise duty tax on top. Um, in Manitoba, which is fascinating where I live, they've applied PST to medical cannabis, but not to recreational cannabis. So that means that the cost of medical cannabis is more in Manitoba uh, than it would be if you you purchased that product through the recreational market. Interesting. And yeah. what about uh, extended health medical plans? Where are we with insurance yeah. covering this as a medicinal expense? Great question. And probably one of the most stunning findings in our survey is that of the people that have medical rec uh, medical authorization, only 6% were able to actually claim medical uh, cannabis-related costs. Uh, and so that's a huge amount of people that are having to pay out of pocket. And, you know, we had 40% of our sample spending more than $200 a month. And 30% of our sample were living with less than $35,000 a year as an annual income. So for many people, they were telling us that I'm having to make really tough choices between my groceries, my gas, my housing, and being able to afford the medicine that I feel is working for me. Right. And as an issue, 
if you told a lot of people that, oh, I have to decide between, you know, food, rent, and and pot, or <laughs> I guess these kind of terms are kind of on the way out, but yeah. cannabis, a lot of people would laugh at that. They would. Um, I think a lot of people assume that it is covered because we have had a medical cannabis program for 20 years. We have health professionals involved in authorizing it. So they're a bit stunned when they can't get any reimbursement from it. The only group that's actually quite fortunate is uh, our Canadian veterans. 25% of that 6% were people that were veterans. Uh, and they have a much more flexible and supportive uh, program around reimbursing the costs of medical cannabis. Interesting. And uh, like PTSD, I guess, is probably something that's used. Very much so. Within that population, PTSD, sleep issues, anxiety, and I would also assume chronic pain uh, for some of the injuries that they may have had um, through their service. So if there's one thing to take away from this report, uh, what do you think it is? What's the first thing that needs to happen to, to make this a better situation? Yeah. From my perspective, we're in the midst of a five-year review of the Cannabis Act and regulations. Um, and it's essential that we have patients and clinicians and experts on medical cannabis as part of that review. And to date, they're not part of the expert panel that's reviewing that act and regulations. Uh, and medical cannabis is not a, a strong focus in that review. And so we have to ensure that the Canadians' voices around medical cannabis are being represented and will be listened to as we move forward with future policy changes. Interesting. And, and this might be a little off topic, uh, but psychedelics, especially psilocybin uh, mushrooms, I'm Seeing more and more of that, it seems like it's available. I'm seeing advertisements on telephone poles, and I talk to a lot of people who are who who have tried it, who have microdosed psilocybin, and they are big uh, big fans of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, where are we on that? You know, it's a great question because I we actually just submitted a, a clinical trial on psilocybin and its use in uh, cancer patients. Um, and the running joke for those of us that are, are straddling the, the cannabis and the psilocybin, you know, psychedelic space is that the psychedelics are just bypassing us. Like they're, they're getting the funding, they're getting the money. They don't seem to have any issues in terms of getting product for those clinical trials. Whereas we have 13 trials uh, that were funded about three years ago on medical cannabis and they're languishing because they're being told that you can't use the cannabis products that are in the market currently. You have to have a higher grade product that's almost far pharmaceutical style in order to actually do your trial. And so they're all languishing saying we can't start our study because we don't have access to the product. Um, whereas psychedelics seem to be on the fast track, uh, which is really exciting, um, but it's too bad that legalization has almost made medical cannabis research uh, stalled in our country. Wow, that's so interesting. And, and I guess, a lot of people who are of a certain age, they grew up with cannabis being very stigmatized, something you hid, and it's not going to be an overnight thing where people are going to suddenly be able to talk about it openly. It's true. But at the same time, when you look at the uh, Canadian Cannabis Survey, uh, which is a large population-based survey, the largest group of people that are increasing their use of cannabis are those 65 years and over. And what we also found in our study is that there, one in two of our participants are using it as a replacement or to reduce the other medications that they're on. 
And it's typically things that we see in older populations like ibuprofen. We're seeing people replacing antidepressants. And more importantly, people are using it to reduce their use of opioids. And with our opioid epidemic in this country, that's really important because cannabis could be a key harm reduction strategy. So I think the Canadian population is open to it. We need now to have policy reform that is looking at those potentials. We need health professionals that are getting educated and having less stigmatized conversations with patients. Uh, and we need to make sure that there's reasonable access through lower cost. Let's have this accessible in the community, perhaps through pharmacies, you know, and making sure that we're evaluating this framework on a regular basis. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dr. Linda Balneves is a registered nurse, a PhD, associate professor at the University of Manitoba, and she was the lead investigator on this report. And uh, well, I wish you the best of luck with your work. It's it it seems like it's a very valuable thing and a very valid thing to look into. So, uh, Dr. Balneves, thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you... Are you... Are you... Okay. 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 Are you okay with... All right. Are you okay with chocolate? Chocolate? Who is... Chocolate? (laughs) Yes, Mr. Flintstone. Yeah, I should have played that. Infamous scene from SpongeBob SquarePants with the screaming guy just screaming chocolate over and over again. <laughs> um, I love chocolate. I very yeah. much do. And if I had to pick one chocolate bar to live with for the rest of my life, no hesitation. It's just the Kit Kat bar. Not the chunky, not any special flavor, although there are some good ones. Just a standard Kit Kat bar is just a magical, magical thing. And if you, I, I will also admit freely that pairing it with some recreational cannabis is a fantastic munchies choice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I remember uh, chocolate. Whenever I think of chocolate, I always think of uh, the time I went to the movie theater with my daughter, Ruby, when she was little. And we went to see the movie Get Smart with Steve Carell. I love that movie. Because we loved Steve Carell and we loved Get Smart on DVD. We used to watch yeah. the original Get Smart with uh, Don Adams. too. Sorry about that, Chief. And we went to the theater, and uh, and it was just me and her, and she was pretty young. She hadn't been to a lot of movies. And uh, I said, you know what we should do? We should get some Rolos, the chocolate caramel candy, Mm -hmm. and a big bag of popcorn, and then uh, eat them together. And uh, have you ever ever done that? Oh, absolutely. We used to, when I was in daycare, we used to, uh, I remember that we did a Harry Potter marathon. I bet my brother would remember this too. And the, uh, the daycare lady wasn't super nice, but that movie marathon of Harry Potter movies, the fourth one had just come out. She let us make monster mash for Halloween, which was popcorn, M&Ms, gummy worms, and Kit Kat. And and still to this day, every now and then I'll throw it together because it tastes spectacular but the chocolate and the popcorn is it's like chocolate covered pretzels yes it's just the perfect sweet and salty combo yeah because i remember sweet and salty was not a thing but nowadays you get the chocolate bars that with the sea salt on them and stuff yeah. Oh, yeah. and and there's nothing better than that salty taste and the chocolate 
Yeah, so I, I love chocolate. But uh, this is uh, an interesting story about chocolate, a very shocking story that was in the news last week. Uh, it might have slipped under your radar. A chocolate factory in Pennsylvania exploded they responded to the scene here at the R.M. Palmer Company at about 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon. When they got here, they found one building of the company was destroyed and a neighboring apartment building and church were damaged. Seven people were taken to the hospital, were working now to learn their conditions. The chocolate company was founded in 1948 and employed 850 people. Borough officials say there is no threat to the surrounding area, but because of the explosion, rail service had to be suspended overnight, but that resumed earlier this morning. Yeah, that from CBS News. Uh, that blast ended up killing seven and injuring ten. But now, one of the survivors is sharing her story and how she survived. Patricia Borges says flames had engulfed the building in her arm when the floor gave way beneath her. And that might have been the end if she hadn't fallen into a vat of liquid chocolate. Unbelievable. Oh, chocolate. Is there anything you can't do? Uh, the dark liquid extinguished her blazing arm, but Patricia Borges wound up breaking her collarbone and both of her heels. Um, and she, she called out the rescuers, followed the sound of her voice. They found her in a tight space in chest-deep water. And she says she and others had complained about a gas odor about 30 minutes before the factory blew up. It's a crazy story. They're still uh, picking through the rubble to really, you know, understand what happened. But yeah, she fell in, and I sure I didn't make it clear in the script there, but it was only chocolate that she fell into. But then, as the firefighters were extinguishing the the blaze, all the water mixed in. So she actually, when she fell in, she was uh, I think half deep in, but the water actually filled it up to the top. And there was a point where she was completely submerged until she was able to kind of get her, you know, her hands over and hang on. But she was stuck in that vat of chocolate for I think it was four hours. Wow, it was a long time. Yeah. yeah, it's too bad that you can't enjoy it. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> she'd be I mean, so no. scared. It'd be scared. Yeah, and the smell wouldn't even be that good because you would just smell the gas but maybe there was you know if she got hungry there was a little bit of food there i don't know yeah. but it definitely she's alive and it's thanks to chocolate and which is not a sentence i would ever uh, <laughs> take seriously honestly. chocolate saved my life chocolate is there anything you can't do i mean trucker dan just texted in and said dinosaurs didn't have chocolate and they are extinct i think i rest my case uh, That's very a, scientific, Trucker Dan. Yes, big brain. All right, let's get into this next story, uh, completely out of context. And can you sing? Yes, I can. Mm -hmm. And what are you sing today? I'm going to sing Go Down Moses. Oh. oh. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Okay. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard, they could not stand. Let my people go. <laughs> Are you okay with American Idol? So, in the O'Donnell household back in the, the God, that would have been like 2000 and maybe six or seven, American Idol was a weekly thing. Like, we would, yeah. as a family, watch that show. And I actually remember vividly 
that audition. I remember sitting on the couch uh, with my brother, mom, and dad, and that episode playing, and I was just speechless laughter over this just mind-blowing audition. And, you know, American Idol was a fun show to watch because the early season, you get to you know, kind of poke fun at some of the bad auditions and the interesting characters, and then you watch the people become, you know, the stars now, I, but I haven't watched it in years, and I think a big reason is they don't really show the bad auditions anymore. They, yeah. they don't really do that, which I understand why, but it just kind of takes a little bit too much of the fun out for me personally. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I don't like watching American Idol because I feel like it just sanitizes music too much for me. It definitely did. In the early seasons, because you had like Kelly Clarkson and who's the other... Clay Aiken was on the show. Right. He didn't win, but he obviously did pretty well after. Uh, Chris Daughtry, uh, Adam Lambert, who lost, but definitely did better than the other guy, who I think is, is something Cook. David Cook, I think. Uh, you know, there were some pretty big careers have come out of that show. But I mean, if you think about it, I could only really put four names to the top of my head of successful, you know, American Idol careers off the top of my head. And there's like 12 seasons so, you know, it's just not yeah. everybody got their shot, but it, it is, you know, it's in terms of reality competition TV wasn't bad. Yeah, I get it. Bad. I get the entertainment value. And it's a certain type of entertainer and there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that type of entertainer. But when you think about it, you know, if Bob Dylan went on American Idol, I don't think Bob Dylan would win somehow. That's a very good point. Absolutely. I don't think anybody would go for that in the audition. You know, no. like it wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think so. But the, the show is going strong. People love it. Uh, but it's facing a bit of a crisis right now. Uh, despite uh, insisting from singer and American Idol judge Katy Perry, contestant Sarah Beth Lieb doesn't think show business is for her. She's 25. She quit the vocal competition during Sunday night's Idol episode, claiming she felt guilty for being away from her three young children. And this decision for her to throw in the towel comes only weeks after Perry, Katy Perry, who's 38, was criticized by viewers for mom-shaming Lieb. Uh, who had her first child when she was 18 years old uh, during her initial audition. I'm from California. You cannot be 25. What are you saying? Yes, 25. No, 16. I I mean, come on. Bless. You guys are my favorite. Give us a real, give us a business. I have three kids, so that's like, Get away from here. What are you saying? Uh, <laughs> okay, Katie? Nope. It's okay. If Katie lays on the table, I think I'm going to pass out. Three kids. <laughs> Honey, you've been laying on the table too much. No. So fans of the show were quick to point out Katie's comments, some calling it mom shaming. Yes, and over on Instagram, Sarah addressed the exact moment between her and Katie, which she calls embarrassing and hurtful. I don't really have too much to say on my feelings about it because I feel like it's probably pretty self-explanatory. I mean, it was embarrassing to have that on TV and it was hurtful and, you know, <laughs> that's that. Okay, so Sarah posted that video to Instagram on March 8th, but the episode that aired this past Sunday was when Sarah decided to drop out of the competition so she could be back home with her kids. That's from ET Canada, and Lieb later explained to the cameras backstage that if her children were a little older, she may have considered staying in the competition. But... Mm. Uh, yeah, so mom shaming. Not a- yeah, I mean, her reasons for leaving are very 
valid. I didn't really get a chance to listen to her sing or anything like that, but there's a clip they, that I, we didn't grab here of Katy Perry basically pleading with her to stay in the competition. Right. And she decided the best thing for her and her family was to go home. And I, I, I absolutely respect that. At the end of the day, it's just a just a TV show and she's still getting some great publicity after that. So there could still be some opportunities for her even after leaving, uh, you know, American Idol. Yeah. This might be better. I get it. This might be better than staying for her career. It could, it absolutely could be. I mean, kind of standing up to, to that and, uh, yeah, a very, very weird comment from Katie Perry on that. Um, yeah, they go, they cycle through judges a lot. Now there was that stretch where it was just Randy Jackson, Paula Abdul and Simon Cowell, like the, the Trinity. Right. And then they like, God, they had Nicki Minaj on for like a, a season. I remember. And guys cycle so often now. So yeah, I don't know. American Idol's trying to get her going again. All right. Well, let, let's move on to something uh, also kind of controversial. Are Ooh. you okay with taking pictures of your food? Uh, yeah, not all the time. Not sometimes. It depends on how aesthetically pleasing the food is, uh, or you know how special the meal is. You know, if it's a nice date, sometimes I'll take a picture of Laura and I right before we dig in. But it's uh, I never upload it. I never upload pictures of my food. It's just I have no. like a bank on my phone, a folder of food, the food folder. Right. Yeah. I understand if, if you're making something and it just looks amazing uh, and, it, and you're so proud of it, I get mm-hmm. that. And I don't know, like a, a restaurant meal, unless it's the most incredible restaurant meal of all time and it has some sort of visual, you know, fabulousness. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't see it, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But you, yeah. your your generation is much more intimate. Uh, yeah, I hate to say, generation, <laughs> valid valid point. Yeah, I I think so. Um, but uh, yeah, it's something we see often. The waiter brings the food, and the and the the phone comes out to take a pic. And here's a great example uh, from Parks and Rec. And Tom considers himself a foodie, which apparently means taking Instagrams of food instead of eating it. Okay, so. I liked number one, Chris liked number two, and Ron liked number three. Tom, what about you? Cater number one's presentation was simple, yet exhausting. Number two's was subtle and provocative, like a coy Dutch woman guarding a dark secret. Nothing you're saying is helpful. But number three's told a story. A story from a book I wouldn't read, but I would watch the movie of. (sighs) That's nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's from Parks and Rec. Uh, oh, but what, one ramen restaurant has had enough of the phones, and they want you to eat your food. Kota Kai, owner and operator of Tokyo Eatery Debuchan, said he noticed the customers who waited the longest to eat their food after being served to them tended to be watching YouTube videos on their phones. And Kai said he was concerned not only about customers tying up valuable seating space during peak hours, but about the way that uh, the ramen noodles, the thin ones, stretch out and are ruined after too many minutes in the soup. The owner is now talking to customers Uh, directly if he spots them on their phones. He goes up and talks to them. I feel it's entertainment that is bound to include rules, Kai told CNN. It's like, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Ramen is a form of entertainment. 
Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I see where he's going. I see where he's coming from. Absolutely. You do see a lot of students, though, to be fair, going into a restaurant, taking a picture of the food, then put on a YouTube video and just kind of sitting and using that time in a restaurant to sort of decompress. So I get why my generation do that. But yeah, like if you're in there for it's just a bowl of ramen. If you're in there for longer than half an hour, you've been there too long. Yeah. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with taking pictures of food. I, I to me. Just don't bore everybody else with it. Because I, I love photography. Photography is a hobby of mine. And it, and it, it is a completely meditative thing for me. And, uh, you know, just it, it's really fun to take pictures of things. But you don't have to show people everything you take a picture of. You don't have to put it on social media. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 